Is that true? Michelle's in San Diego. I'm in LA. In where? Los Angeles. Oh, okay. So it looks like we are live now. So welcome everyone to Wine, Women, and Words. Um, my name is Michelle, and with me tonight is Diana, as always. And joining us tonight is Seth Margulis. And if I just butchered your last name, please let me know. No, that was pretty good, actually. Okay. And um, you're joining us tonight to talk about the amazing books, The Semper Sonnet. Um, <laughs> I love seeing it held up like that. I have to do the same. <laughs> All right, end of plugs. I just can't do it because I gave Michelle my copy, so yeah, I'm doing you it. I'll get it back. I'll I'll send you a a <laughs> check so you can go buy another copy, but you might not. Get it. <laughs> but we are very happy. We we have had an author on our show in the past, um, but it's always exciting to be able to chat with an author of a book that we both uh, enjoyed so much. And I'll, I know we've had some technical issues. For some reason, Google Hangouts, every time we try to do it live, it throws a curveball. And I don't know how I ended up being the, the tech guru of this outfit, because I am not <laughs> at all. All right, I'm all. I'm, I'm my charger is plugged in. I'm ready to go. <laughs> Excellent. All righty. So I guess to get the show started, this is wine, women, and words. So we have to ask, what is your favorite beverage to enjoy when you're kicking back on a quiet uh, Thursday night? Well, I mean, normally it would be wine. It, I mean, there's not a lot of beverages that I really don't enjoy, but um, but it's, I'm here in New York City, so it's actually 11 o'clock or almost 11.30. So by now I'm usually through wine. And so, and there's a little fall nip in the air. So I poured myself um, a little bit of scotch. Can you see that? Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, it just felt, it felt, it felt a little um, Elizabethan and, um, and it felt autumnal, if that's a word. And so that's what I'm having. We have we have zero fall weather here. It's like I don't, I don't know how I know. hot it is for yeah. you, Diana. It's in the uh, mid eighties still. I have the air conditioning running right now, and it's eight thirty at night. Yeah, it's hot down here too. It was like nine, I think, in the low nineties maybe, or it might have cooled down into eighties, but it's still hot. We pretend to have fall on the west coast. It's like a game we like. Right, to play. but yeah. Yeah, we're not quite there yet, but it was it was it was a little nippy today. It's actually kind of nice. I like the fall in New York, so I'm not unhappy about it. And it's an excuse to drink scotch. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm, when I lived in New York, fall was my favorite season. I found that the most tolerable season for to live in New York. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it is a lot happening, and it's it's just very comfortable. I really like it. Well, I'm I'm moving to Chicago at the end of the year, so I'm moving like right in the middle of winter, and I haven't been in winter in a very long time, so I don't really know how I'm going to handle that. Lots of wine, um, I think. Winter in winter in Chicago is is real winter. <laughs> it's exciting. Yeah. So I veering back. Um, 
Diana, did you have, did you want to take the next one? Um, sure. So um, for our very first podcast, um, we did an episode of our favorites, what our favorite books are. Um, what are a few of your all-time favorite reads? Oh, gosh, that's such a hard one to answer. I mean, I love um, a, a book that I've read, you know, I think I first read in high school, and then I read it again in my 20s, and then both my kids had to read it in high school, I guess, so I read it with them. And then I probably read it once since then, is The Great Gatsby. I've read that, uh, you know, I, I can't count the number of times. So I'd have to put that right up there. Um, and anything by Charles Dickens, I love Dickens. And um, I haven't read him in a number of years, but I've read pretty much everything he wrote, and that's a lot. He was very prolific. I admire that about him too. So um, anything by Dickens, um, Madame Bovary, um, I love. I read um, a lot of mysteries and I write mysteries so and a lot of suspense novels. Um, so um, right now I've been reading a series of novels by Philip Kerr, K-E-R-R, -R, that take place um, during world, before, during, and I think just about, just after World War II in Berlin. Um, and I love, historical i love suspense set in the past um and he writes um he has a, an ongoing character a detective um uh bernie gunther is his name and i really enjoy his books a lot i just discovered him this year so um i read him i love um uh reading things that are funny although there's not a lot that's funny frankly but uh, i read everything christopher buckley writes i think he's really funny um and uh yeah, so that's sort of an eclectic group of what I like to read. And our like our to to be read list. I mean, I know Diana constantly adds new books, and I I don't even know when I'll be able to get to my to be read list. But do you have books that you constantly say, "Oh, I'll have to get to that eventually"? Um, you know, something at this point of my life, I've I've gotten to them. There are books that I've never been able to get through that I feel kind of guilty about, which is probably a more appropriate list for me. So I've never gotten through Marcel Proust. I've read, I've started um, uh, Remembrance of Things Past about six times, and I think I've gotten maybe 150 pages in and then just kind of abandoned it. Um, I did make it through War and Peace a couple, uh, not War and Peace, um, Moby Dick a few years ago and actually um, had a great time with it. Although I skipped over a lot of the really, really dense parts about tying ropes and things like that. Um, I'm trying to think of what's on my list that I feel bad about. Uh, you know, everyone says War and Peace. Um, <laughs> never, got, never got around to that. Um, but I think that's about it. Um, I, pretty, I think I've t checked all the boxes. Well, I think you could, if you challenge me, you could probably find all sorts of... Um, books that I haven't read that I probably should have, but um, I feel pretty good at the moment that I've, that I've uh, read most of what I think I, I want to read. Um, I, I'm talking about classics now. I, you know, I have, I'm always, you know, I'm never short of a book to read, so. <laughs> I often I'm reading like three at a time. Got uh, one by the bedstand, one then loaded on my Kindle, and then one for every day. Really? I can't do that. I wish I could. And I know a lot of people that do that, but I just, I don't know why. I'm just, um, I, I think I would become um, confused and distracted. I've never been able to read more than one book at a time. 
Um, and I would never know which one to pick up at what, at what point. It's just, it seems like too much of a burden. So I've, ne I've never been able to do that. And can I just... You're a literary monogamous. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, yes, I'm a literary monogamous. That's a good way to put it. And I just love, um, off topic, but I love the fact that you're sitting in front of your bookcase. I think that's like the perfect setting. That oh, am I, is that what you're seeing behind, <laughs> is that what you're seeing behind me? Yeah. This is actually the dining room. So we live in an apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, um, and which is where I've lived. We, my wife and I have lived for 30 years, I guess, and we've raised our two kids here. They've now flown the coop. And um, so this is, we are fortunate to live in Manhattan and actually have a real dining room. Um, and so what you're seeing, I'm sitting at the end of our dining room table and then behind me are bookshelves. So. Oh, well, it totally I mean, looks I, like, a, like a study, so I would have never guessed. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, well, that, the other thing about when you live in an apartment, I see I can actually give you a little tour of it, um, is yeah. you, um, every room doubles for something else. So this is actually where I've written most of what I've written. Um, okay. At this table, yeah, because when, especially when the kids were here, we had no extra rooms at all. So this was the room that I wrote at. So well, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. Now, when I first uh, Diana first told me about this book when she was reading it, and she instantly knew that I had to read it, and she was absolutely right. Um, oh. So when I started reading it, work. This book is screaming, Michelle. Once I finish it, you need to read it. Sorry, my I, my phone is just keeps giving me this weird signal that I'm losing power. So, okay, should be good. Um, I'm curious, um, Diana, how did you find the book? Um, your publicist um, messaged me about it and asked if I was willing to review it for my blog. And he was like, it's a little bit out of your uh, normal variety, uh, reading. And I was like, well, and I took a look at it, and all I saw was Shakespeare and then this a female lead. And I was like, that's it. I'm sold. I'm... <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay, of... I'm going to give this a try. And then, um, that's yeah, that's when I was, yeah, I read it. It was a great, one of those great summer reads um, yeah. for mysteries. Okay. Yeah, and then I passed it off to Michelle, who loves suspense and thrillers. I'm the historical fiction girl. She's the the mystery girl. So you got both of us. Yeah, like there's a little of both. Yeah. Oh, you're the perfect audience then. <laughs> yes. So when I started reading it, I told her it feels like it's like the Tudors because I don't know how many times my mom and I have watched the Showtime series, The Tudors. It, it's like the Tudors meets the Da Vinci Code, and then you have Outbreak thrown in at the end. Um. <laughs> <laughs> now that would be a great slug line for the back of the book. <laughs> yeah. So where where did your the idea come from for um, Semper? Um, you know, it's so hard to think about the actual beginnings of it. I would say, so like you, Michelle, I've always been really interested in, in the Tudor period of England, um, Henry VIII in particular, but also Elizabeth. And, you know, it's one of those periods in history that just seems to have given rise to so many larger than life characters, you know? So of course, Henry and of course, Elizabeth, um, but, you know, and of course, Shakespeare. So there's, you know, there's a great, um, 
number of, of, of writers and philosophers, but also, you know, Sir Walter Raleigh and Francis Drake and um, Wolsey and Cromwell and, you know, just these, just these incredible characters, Sir Thomas More. Um, so I've always loved that period. I've read a lot about that period. And, you know, one of the things that always interested me was that, you know, the greatest figure of that period, at least the greatest political figure, who was Elizabeth, possibly also her father, you could say it was equally great, um, it, you know, never had a child. So the, the, um, the, the entire dynasty that we're all so interested in just died out with her. And I always thought, it's, it's, that's such a shame. I don't think anyone quite um, has lived up to that since then, lived up to the sort of standard she set, certainly not the current crop. And um, so I, so I've always thought like, you know, wondered, you know, why she didn't have children. And then I, the next, if you're a writer, you start thinking, you know, I guess all books begin a little bit with a what if questions. So I thought, well, what if she had had a child? So, so that was sort of the premise. I just wanted to write about that period. Um, and, but I, but I also wanted to be, I, I've had a couple of books that weren't mystery or suspense, but generally I wanted to write a, a suspense novel. So I thought, well, what would be suspensible about that? And, um, and I wanted to set it somewhat in the, at least half of it in the, in the modern day. And I thought, well, whether or not she had a child, why would that matter in, you know, in the 21st century? Who cares? It would be sort of interesting for people like us who are interested in that period, but why would it matter that Elizabeth had a child? So then I thought, well, what if, you know, the, the identity of this, or the fact that she had a child, in fact, led to something even bigger than that, and something that you know, posed a threat in the 21st century. Um, and it was sort of that evolution that got me thinking about um, about writing this. So it started with a what if, what if she had had a child, and then I thought, well, how do I make that you know, it could, it's interesting to those of us who are interested in the 21st century, but how do I make that Rele relevant from a suspense point of view. And that's where the whole um, idea of Semper came along um, and, and, and sort of connected the uh, 16th century with the 21st century. Yeah, the disease that you talk about in there that um, some of the people have, that is a creepy disease. Is that an actual disease or is it something? Yeah, oh, I, no, I made it up. The, uh, the disease that um, the family in Massachusetts have is sort of based on something real that I had done some consulting work for a pharmaceutical company several years ago and there was there's this very very rare syndrome that involves people having chills and um, you know sort of never being able to be warm and that was sort of the germ of the idea pun intended for what this family had they don't they weren't affected by separate they just it was just this genetic uh, condition that was passed down from Elizabethan times to the present time. It just seemed like an interesting um, way to connect the family all the way through that they had passed on um, this this genetic inheritance. So, but the Semper, no, I completely made that up. Yeah. So um, I did some research on uh, ecophagy. What was that? I said kudos to you for creating some creepy diseases. I just. Just gotta yeah. say that. <laughs> always fun to create a creepy disease. I did do a little research <laughs> on ecophagy because I wanted to sort of to make it at least semi-plausible. I thought, well, is in you know, could a bacteria actually live inside a vessel for hundreds of years, right? Wouldn't it need some sort of host that was alive? So I did a little research to find out if that was theoretically possible and 
possible, although it's never been proven. So that's the extent of the reality was that if, if this bacteria existed 500 years ago, it could have been locked up in the, the, the Semper vessel and it could still be alive after all these years. But beyond that, I made the whole thing up. <laughs> now, at least for me, if, if I'm, when I'm writing, sometimes it can take me forever to come up with the right name for a character or, you know, a description. So how long, I'm curious, did it take you to come up with Semper? The, you mean to actually write the whole thing? No, the the name, just the ter the term Semper for the name of the d disease and the title. Oh, interesting. Now, let me think about that. Um, I'm not sure when, what at what moment I came up with the name. That's a really good question. Um, I think, I, I'm not even sure. Isn't that funny? <laughs> Somewhere along the line. I know I didn't, I did not start the book thinking, it would have Semper in the title. It's somewhere along the line. I think it was some, when I was writing the scenes where the Spaniards discover it in South America and they, you know, they call it Semper. Maybe, you know, that would be the good name for it. So I don't really know, actually. But um, this is names are hard, though, and I always... What's that? I'm sorry? No, what were you going to say? I was going to say, this is why all authors are magicians. For everybody out there to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But names are really, the, it's funny that you mentioned na the name of the book, but names of the books are hard. Names of characters are hard. And I always, um, I always name things unconsciously um, and then end up having trouble. So my, or accidentally, let's say. I mean, the very first book I wrote, which was a mystery called False Faces, the lead character um, was named Carol. And after I had finished it, and it was with St. Martin's Press to be published, um, I met and married my wife, whose name is Carol. So I had to call my publisher and frantically say, you must change the name of the character in this book. I, I must have, maybe I, it was um, fate that I had come up with the name before I met my wife. But, um, and in the book that I just finished, um, that'll be published next year, um, there's a character named Benny. And my sister, Jane, who's a wonderful editor, She's a, um, that's not her profession, but she read the man, it reads my manuscripts. And, and she said, she sent back some comments on this book and said, but the only thing I'll, you know, now that I've graciously, you know, um, commented in the book, you need to change the character of Benny. And I said, why? And she said, well, Seth, how obvious, my son is named Benjamin. You can't name this villainous <laughs> character. It never occurred to me that it had anything to do with him. And she said, well, it did occur to me, so. <laughs> Um, I don't know how that happens. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think he was related to the character at all, but it's happened a number of times where I, I realize characters have some sort of, the names, if not the identities of the character, have a real life counterpart. I have to go back and change them all. That's just, this is much easier now in the search and replace with uh, Microsoft Word than it was with my first <laughs> book where I had to go through the whole thing. And, and change change the uh, character's name. <laughs> well, speaking of um, with the research and everything, researching names, researching uh -huh. places, um, with historical fiction, it's so important that we get a good chunk of it right. Because I would consider this a good, you know, a crossover between mystery and historical fiction. Mm -hmm. um, what can you say about the research that you did to try to make it as historically believable as, as possible? Yeah, so I did a bunch of different kinds of things. I first did a lot of book research. There's a book 
um, by a writer named, I think it's Liza Picard called Everyday Life in Elizabeth's London. I think it's a wonderful book. It, I would, I would have been happy to read it even if I weren't using it for research. Um, and it's just full of really rich details about what it was like to, you know, not just to be the, the queen of England during that time, but to be an ordinary person living in London. Um, and, and I got some good medical details from that. And I um, read about two or three biographies of Elizabeth. You know, she's sort of a minor character in the book in some ways, but central to it at the same time. Um, so I read a number of biographies of her. Um, you know, Google, of course, is, is really good for that, for that, for this kind of research. And then I went to England um, and I went to, you know, two of the locations um, that figure in it. So I spent a lot of time in Westminster Abbey, as, as you can imagine, um, arousing a lot of suspicion among the, um, they're actually called Beatles, the guards who work there, because I just sort of hung out and looked around and took notes and asked them about the um, infrared um, uh, security devices, <laughs> which I was surprised they didn't put, you know, put me in handcuffs after that. Like, well, you know, what would it take to alarm one of these? And if I wanted to disable it, what would I do? And they were actually really helpful. I don't know why they were talking. Um, but you know from the book that that's actually really key is to be able to cause all that mayhem, in, you know, back in the Lady Chapel in Westminster Abbey. So I spent a lot of time there. I spent the day at, um, <coughs> excuse me, at Hatfield House, so, which is where um, a big, uh, an important book takes place and um and then the character of lee actually goes there early on in the novel to, to, to do her research into what's going on um and that was really nice it was it's actually open to public a few months of the year but i was there off season so i actually made an appointment um with someone and got a private tour of the old palace where um and it's actually the where um elizabeth was sort of informed kept well, she was kept prisoner by her sister mary um, and, you know, it was, it was a nice kind of prison. It was a palace, but it was a prison. And, you know, she, she couldn't leave. And it was where she, um, there, you can actually see the tree that supposedly she was sitting under when word came that her sister had died, her hated uh, Catholic sister Mary, and she was now the Queen of England. Um, so that was sort of the um, on-site research. And then um, a lot of it is just living in New York. So a lot of the scenes were set here in Manhattan, and that's, this is where I've spent my whole life. So that was, that was relatively easy. Um, and then, you know, a lot of, um, there was a, some of the scientific things that have to do with Semper itself. Um, I found research papers that I was able to download, um, or one case to actually had someone pick one up at a library for me that wasn't online, but, um, so it was, it was actually fun to research. It's, you know, the, the historical parts, it's a period that I love. And then the contemporary parts about the disease and stuff like that are, are things that it was just interesting to become fluent in. It was really fun from since I love the the two the um, Henry the Eighth and the Tudors and I watched that series and have read so much about it. It was really fun to see uh, to almost like run into Anne or um, Elizabeth and Mary after. It's almost like running into uh -huh. friends that you haven't seen in in a long time and just yeah. kind of see what happened to them after um, you know after Henry the Eighth died and it, the succession moved on. So yeah. it's. It's just an amazing period, it's, and it, what amazes me is there are so many um, uh, people, I think a lot of women more than men, although maybe that's just the Elizabeth, who are just obsessed with that period in history, and just, there's something about it that just, there's a lot of allure, there are, you know, Goodread uh, groups about it, and um, just, it, there's, a, there's a never-ending series of um, novels, 
based on events in that period. It's really amazing. It's, it's just, there's just something so rich about the, you know, particularly the, um, the royalty at that time and the literary world. Um, just a confluence of larger than life, brilliant characters that, you know, are bigger than fiction really. Um, it just, it just attracts just a lot of really interesting people. Um, the way that, you know, a lot of people are, a lot of women are fascinated by Jane Austen and there are all sorts of Jane Austen book clubs, you know, um, on particularly online. And my sister is, um, is um, something about Tudor England just attracts a similar devotion. I'm not really sure why. And going, uh, keeping on with your research, I mean, you had to write a sonnet that Shakespeare, that Shakespeare could have written. How, how what kind well, of work did you put into writing that sonnet? Yeah, so first of all, it, it doesn't come close to being a, a you know, it, there's not one word in it that's as good as a Shakespeare sonnet. But that said, I'm very proud of what I created. Um, <laughs> that was the hardest part. It, I, and I, honestly, I don't, I'm trying to think back on how I did it. I know that I did it, I just, I kept, I would write and then I would make a note in the manuscript, um, need a line in the sonnet about this and and then, I, I do a lot of traveling. I have a completely separate career as a uh, marketing consultant, so I do a lot of traveling. And, and I write in the morning and then go about my life, uh, my other life. And so I, would do a, I wrote a lot of the sonnet on airplanes. I would just, you know, like waiting to take off, I had a 15 minutes and I'd fool around. It was sort of like putting a puzzle together, because you know, having read it, that pretty much every the sonnet, there are 14 lines, has a hidden meaning in it. So. Um, I had a lot of fun doing that, um, but you know, I, I'm not quite sure how I did it because I, I don't know that I would do it again. It's, it was a sort of daunting task. To, and you have to sort of retrofit the clues in the sonnet to what's happening in the plot and then sort of vice versa. So um, it was really hard. It wouldn't, I mean, it wouldn't fool even remotely like a Shakespeare sonnet, but it is, you know, it's three stanzas plus the two at the end, the two lines at the end. And, um, you know, it's, it's in the format of a sonnet, iambic pentameter, but um, uh, it's, it's, it's not Shakespearean, but it was a lot of fun and really tough to write, especially because, um, you know, to, just to embed all those clues in there um, was really, it was really tough. Were all of the clues that, that you used were, were all of those, the wordplay and the, um, the hints that Lee picked up, were all of those used in um, Elizabethan times? Were all those wordplay, was that real? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So, the, I mean, the, the short answer is no, but the deeper answer is that the Elizabethans love wordplay. I mean, Shakespeare's full of puns, not really anagrams like I have or hidden words, but definitely double entendres, Puns. Um, the Elizabethans loved language. I think it's because the language was still kind of new, the English language. So, um, so the, the notion of wordplay um, being something that um, that 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 a, a poet at that time, including Shakespeare, would have used is very real. And Shakespeare was a master of wordplay. Um, but some of the specific kinds of wordplays that I included, both in the sonnet and elsewhere in the novel. I knowledge were not Elizabethan and anagrams and things like that, or, um, you know, hidden words or, you know, lines read backward, that kind of thing. 
Um, but, but, but playing with words was a very much an Elizabethan sort of um, pastime, I would say. Yeah, so that was, that was really fun to, to explore that. And uh, for um, the, about Elizabeth, I've been reading a lot now after, <laughs> during and finishing your book, I've been researching a lot about Elizabeth. And I actually, uh -huh. side note, had no idea that she was buried with Mary. Um, that was new. Um, that, I, but, I missed that. What was um, that? I was just saying that during, um, while I was reading your book and after I finished it, I started researching a lot about Elizabeth because I don't really, I didn't really know that much about her. And I actually had no idea that she was buried with her sister. Um, I know, isn't that the strangest thing? I don't think Mary would have. But um, I had no idea that there were so many myths about Elizabeth. Um, I, some of the ones that I came up came across was that Queen Elizabeth was actually a man, um, yeah. and that Queen yeah. Queen Elizabeth was actually Shakespeare, and that Sir Francis Bacon was actually Queen Elizabeth's son. Um, do you think the idea that she had a son in secret while she, I'm mean, not while she was queen, but while she was still a princess, do you think that could have been possible? I guess it could have been. I mean, there's really no evidence to it. Again, it's, I think, just as I said, that one of the reasons I started to think about writing the book <coughs> was because it frustrated me that she was sort of the end of the line, you know, for the Tudors and that the most brilliant women in English, woman in English history kind of, you know, never had issue. Um, I think a lot of people want to believe that the same thing. And so therefore they invent stories about, you know, possible heirs and, you know, offspring, um, and but there's really no evidence for it. Uh, although people concoct it, I guess, or you know, read into manuscripts and things. It, there is still there is some debate among scholars even about why she never had children. However, that's a, you know, for, well, why she never married and why she never had children. It was unlikely as a queen that she would have had a child out of wedlock. But you know, why did she refuse to get married? And the, most scholars, I think, th believe that. Um, she, as you know, as, as a, I guess, really the first monarch in her own right in English history, um, she didn't want to have to share power, and she, um, and she knew that if she married almost anyone, he would, because you know, he would, even though if a, if a king marries, when the king takes a wife, she's sort of just a, uh, you know, a, um, she, you know, his sort of sidekick with that much power. When a queen marries, um, her husband becomes king, and he can. And he, he would presumably share power with her. And I don't think she ever wanted to do that. Um, and then others think that she knew that if she got married, she would have to, you know, she'd be expected to have children. And she was, you know, terrified. Informortality was very high then, but so was death in childbirth for the mother. And, you know, she wasn't just a coward in terms of worried about her own death, but she was worried about what it would do to England if she died suddenly. Um, and so she was just determined never to put the put herself and therefore put the the realm at risk. So that's I think that's generally the most accepted reason that she never married. Plus, he was a master at playing off all of this for her um, hand of marriage. So the nobles at her court, Sir Walter Raleigh and other prominent Leicester, all the, you know, sort of all of the 
um, the romantic figures at court. She played one off against another and it kept them loyal to her. And she did the same with foreigners, with um, uh, foreign uh, uh, nobility, including, you know, the King of Spain and, 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 and Dukes in France. She kept, you know, sort of, you know, sending her emissaries abroad to ask about the, you know, the possibility of, of marriage. And it kept them kind of, um, not exactly on her side, but you know, currying favor with her. So she used her eligibility as a um, uh, something to bring power to herself and to England. That's, I think the most plausible thing. But again, you know, a lot of people just can't accept the fact that the most brilliant um, monarch in history, and, and certainly in English history, you know, just ended. And so they want to think that something of her lives on. And, you know, from my book that I'm one of those, but I don't know if I believe it. Well, um, looking at some of the research that Michelle did, one of your books here, uh, Losing Isaiah, got uh -huh. turned into a movie. Um, are there, is there yeah. any talks about getting a separate up option for that? Or? Well, so my agent is discussing it, um, but nothing really is happening. I mean, there's no deal yet. It's a, it would, if you think about it, it'd be a very hard novel to film um, for a lot yeah. of reasons. First of all, um, you know, the wordplay, which is central to it, it, um, is, it would be hard to visualize. I can think of ways you could do it, but, you know, film is a visual medium and the Semper Sonnet is very much a, um, about words and the meaning of words, so that would be hard. I don't think it would be insurmountable. Um, the, my agent, the feedback she's getting from producers is it's really complicated. It would be a very hard script to write because it's, it's a complicated plot. Um, and it would be expensive because it takes place um, both in Elizabethan times and in current days, so it would be, it would be very costly to make. It would, if it were all took place in the, today, it would be relatively inexpensive. And if it all took place back then, it would be expensive, but not that bad. But the fact that you would sort of have to create two entirely separate wor worlds would be um, expensive. So she's still um, in negotiating, you know, talking to producers, but, and I would love to see it happen. But yeah, that's been, that's been the feedback so far. <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah, hopefully. Cause I mean, I, I love uh, Lee's character. I love her and, you know, Leslie was just, I think we need more characters like her in literature and in in television too. She had that uh, feel like I was saying uh, Robert from the Dan Brown novels. I loved how she had that independence and that fierceness that you typically see with the guys in these books. There is like this role reversal between uh, with the genders. Um, I don't know. Was that on purpose? Was it just you thought it'd be a cool character to have or? Yeah, I like that aspect of it. I just thought, you know, when I thought about, you know, once I had sort of thought in my mind of what I, the contours of what the book was going to be, I thought, you know, I, I thought it would be interesting to make her a female character, um, just because, as you say, that character is typically um, a male character in most books, mm -hmm. right? The 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 the, the um, intrepid um, uh, person who, you know, against all rational. Um, uh, warnings goes off and you know tries to find the truth. So I thought it would be just more interesting if it was a woman. Um, and at the same time, I really wanted the parallel between, and you see how it ended up. I wanted a parallel between her and Elizabeth. So you know, two strong women, and you know, Elizabeth is a, actually I quote it 
um, in the book, I wish I could remember where it was, where Elizabeth said, you know, um, though she's a queen, she's still but a woman and, you know, and limited in terms of, you know, what is expected of her and the power. So I thought, you know, it's sort of ironic that, you know, Lee is, lives in the 21st century and though she's just a, a commoner um, and a student, in some ways she has more freedom than the greatest queen of England, the greatest, one of the greatest monarchs ever because, you know, of what, of, of what women are, are um, able to do in the 21st century that even the queen of England couldn't do in the 16th century. So um, I thought it'd be interesting to contrast the two. Um, and then of course there's a connection between them, which we won't talk about, but, um, you know, I, so I, it was mostly that I just thought it would be interesting to parallel the two lives, um, you know, 500 years apart and, and the sort of some of the ironies of, you know, the freedoms and the power that um, even just a, an average woman would have in, in the 21st century that the Queen of England didn't have way back then. So, um, but I thought, and I just thought it would be much more interesting to make her a woman and, and, and sort of set the book apart. I think it was really interesting that, I mean, when you read suspense novels and you have like the ordinary person thrown into extraordinary circumstances, a lot of times they still know what to do. Like if, but if I had to run from the police and, and get out of the country, <laughs> I wouldn't know how to get a passport. And, and so I love that she basically like Googled it to figure it out. Yeah, I don't know what I would have done without Google. Well, I don't know what my character would have done. But yeah, it, it, it is fun. And, that, and, and, and that's another part to make it um, plausible, even in the current day, you know, that she could elude the police and she could get a passport. Um, but I, did, I, mean, I actually did some research on that with these um, um, sort of an, these anti-government groups, you know, who um, you, can, if you, you can find on the internet, you know, if you search for them. I, and I did find some who will help you create new identities to stay, you know, one step ahead of the government because, you know, the government is bad and is, you know. Um, so, you know, there are people like that out there. There are groups out like out there that she connected with in order to um, create a new identity for herself. But I'm not sure I would have been that resourceful in real life. Do you have any plans to bring Lee back in other novels or was she, is Semper her only one? Well, I, I think I would. I kind of really like her as a character. And, the, you know, there is a secret about her at the end. And it occurs to, you know, what I, and I've already sort of thought about, about what I might, would do with her. I, you know, I think if I do bring her back, which I probably will, I would do it in a way that, um, you know, she um, is through her connections to um, Elizabethan England, you know, comes across another, unsolved mystery with potentially dire consequences for the 21st century. So it'd be the same sort of framework, you know, um, and uh, because I like that and I, it would still be structured in the same way, but it wouldn't, you know, I, I have to think about how, you know, the Rufus Hatton, the doctor, would, I, don't, I don't think I could use him again. <laughs> I think he <laughs> played his role with his diary and that's the end of him. Um, and I, you know, I don't think it would be a long lost sonnet, but I, um, you know, word games is a sort of minor obsession of mine, um, crosser puzzles and cryptic puzzles and anagrams. So I'd probably include some of that in it. So yeah, I'm, I'm probably, I'm almost certainly not through with her, <laughs> but um, I have another book coming out next year that has nothing to do with the Semper Sonnet. So, um, so I'd have to be the book after that. 
What can you tell us about this book that you've got coming out next year? Oh, so it's it's coming out. It's it's totally different. This is a source of frustration to my agent and actually to me because I never <laughs> seem to write the same book twice. So um, this book is called President's Day, um, and it's a uh, contemporary thriller, political thriller. It's actually coming out on President's Day in February, and um, and it's uh, about a um, a billionaire, multi multi billionaire businessman in New York who um, for very, very personal reasons, which I won't reveal because it's part of the mystery of this story, um, decides that he's gonna essentially buy himself the White House. Um, I wrote this long before Donald Trump was a candidate for president, um, <laughs> and, but, it's, but definitely true life has overtaken fiction in this case. Um, uh, this guy doesn't run for president, but he decides essentially to purchase the presidency. And, um, and so it's a political thriller. Um, and as I said, having nothing to do with the Semper Sonnet. Um, and uh, so we'll see, you know, um, if some of the same readers who read Semper will be interested in, I don't know, it's, it appeals to a very different audience, so. And I have one more quick question about Semper because sure. towards the end of Lee writes her own little sonnet and um, she has, little clues hidden in there it sounds like are there ways that we could figure it out well yes and you know the thing is i don't know i so it's an it's the it's the wordplay i'm looking for it now in the book um that is not um it, it's never i never give the solution to it i mean i do um english crosser puzzles um i do every day i do the one that's published in the guardian which you can get online and um and so anyone who solves the guardian crosser puzzles will be able to solve that particular um bit of poetry um so i, I don't I, I yes you you can definitely solve it if you um if you apply yourself and if you send me an email afterwards i'll i'll tell you how to do that i don't know that i should do it now because i can't find it to say what it is but um there's a message it from lee to um to elizabeth that she sort of writes on this piece of paper and then throws overboard with this with um the vessel so uh and if you and if you can solve it i just put that in there for fun and decided i wouldn't um you know um i wouldn't give the answer to it i wouldn't reveal it i just thought it would be sort of fun and diabolical to <laughs> make readers try to figure it out <laughs> so well i think that was all of my questions anna did you have any others for for seth um well, I think the general one for all of, uh, us writers or want to be published writers out there, um, what advice do you give for people who want to be a writer? Oh, um, well, so I just was reading a, um, a memoir, review of a memoir by Robert Gottlieb, who's this um, very famous um, editor at Alfred Knopf, I think is where he was. Um, and he, he edited um, a, a lot of very prominent writers, um, both living and dead. He's in his late 80s now. And he was talking, he said that whenever his writers were overdue, you know, they were blocked or they, you know, they were, um, they had long passed their deadline. He would always say to them, don't write, just type. 
<laughs> and he would say this to you know Kurt Vonnegut and you know some of the greatest uh, literary stylists. Or he would say, "Don't write, just type." And I know what he meant. Sometimes you just have to get the words out. I used to say this to my kids when they were having trouble writing their papers from school. I would say, "Don't worry about it. Just fill the page." And then the fun part, the easy part, is to go back and make it better. You know, just get you know that's like you're both writers. Just get the words mm -hmm. out on the paper, and then you'll find. You know, you can go back and make them better. Don't edit yourself. Don't stifle yourself. Don't block yourself. Just do it. And that was his advice. Don't, um, don't write type. Um, and the other thing I say is I always talk about an anecdote. Um, so a writer that I um, admire a lot is Graham Greene. And uh, I've read, he, he, he was very prolific. He wrote, you know, um, serious novels, um, religious novels, um, light humorous novels as well. Um, and he lived a very sort of glamorous life as well. And um, there's a story about him on a yacht in the Mediterranean that was owned by, um, uh, I think it's Alexander Corder, a famous um, director or producer in Hollywood. And so he was, he was his guest on his yacht. And every morning um, he would uh, go on deck with a uh, pad of paper. This was long before uh, computers, obviously. And he would write one page by hand, you know, in, in, um, in longhand. And at the end of, um, he would get to the end of the page. And even if he were mid sentence, he would stop and he was done for the day. And um, he would, of course, he, he, his style was that he would go back and, and, you know, edit that page, but he would just write one page handwritten a day, stop, and then he would live the great life on the yacht with all these celebrities and um, movie stars and things like that. And by doing that, he basically wrote and published a book a year because, um, you know, if you write a page a year, by the end of the year, you have 365 pages and that's a book. Um, and, he, and, and he did that every day, seven days a week. Um, and and I, I say that to writers too, is that you don't, you know, I've always, I, I've never, virtually never written full-time. I've always had another job and I like it that way actually. And, um, you know, you don't just, just get the words down, write a page a day. And by the end of the year, you'll have the first draft of something and then go back and rewrite it and then rewrite it again and rewrite it again and edit it and edit it and edit it. But, you know, get, just get that first draft out. That's the, you know what that's like. You're both writers. It's the hardest thing. Um, it's, it's, I, I find it so much more pleasurable to go back and make a sentence better than to think of what that first sentence should be. Um, so anyway, that's, that's my best advice is just to write. Um, All right. Great. Well, I think that actually wraps up our, our evening with you, Seth, but thank you so much for joining that's us. Fun. We had a wonderful time. That was and, fun for me. It's great. Both of you. Oh, and yeah. I will. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Diana. Oh, I was just going to say, it was great to actually meet you and talk to you face-to-face -face and pick your brain about the book. Oh, it's great. It's wonderful to discuss it. It really, it's a very um, uh, strange and gratifying experience to hear people talk about characters that you've created as if real people and stories that you made up as if they really happened. It's just a wonderful experience. I love doing it. So thank you so great. much. Thank you. Thank you. And, um... For everyone who is watching or has been watching, um, the book again is The Semper Sonnet by Seth Margulis. Um, and uh, let us know what you think when you finish reading it. And uh, if you do pick up a Guardian crossword and figure out what the 
second sonnet is, um, let me know because I really want to know. <laughs> or send, <laughs> send me an email. Now. Send me an email and I'll tell you. I really, I'll be happy to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but Michelle, you have to work for it. You need to work for. It. You can't just take the easy way out. That's, that's totally cheating. That's true. Spend a little time. <laughs> yes, I'll try. <laughs> Well, thank you again, and we will be back next week. Uh, we'll be starting a new book. Um, next week is, um, we'll start our October read, which is The Woman in Cabin 10 by Ruth Ware for our Halloween book. <laughs> and um, thank you, everyone. Diana, did you have anything else that you wanted to add? Nope, I'm good. All right. Well, thank you again, Seth. It was so much fun talking with Thanks. you. It was really my pleasure. Thank you for your kind support for the book. I appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of, of the course. evening. Of course. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.